Jewish audio on Torah.org. Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchah is the laws of Niskei Moment, damage related to finances. Something people own creates damage, or something a person owns is damaged. Hedek Shnei Mosar, chapter 12. We segue away from the laws of oxen, moving on to the next major category of damage, as the famous opening Mishnah in Baba Kama says, Arba, Oba is Nezikin, there are four primary Sources, categories of damages. Share is one, ox and animals. The second is bear, a pit. A public nuisance. One, if somebody digs a pit in the public domain, which means if he digs a pit in his own backyard, what are you doing in my backyard? In my backyard, I can do whatever I want to. But a person digs a pit in a public domain, and either an ox or a donkey, and this is the language the Chumash uses, an ox or a donkey falls into this pit and dies, even if the pit, the cistern, was filled with wads of wool, meaning soft material, to cushion the fall, being that a donkey or a cow, an ox or a donkey died there, then the owner of this cistern has to pay 100% damage. The Torah says, The master, the owner of the pit, must pay. Now, it doesn't have to be an ox or a donkey. It could be those animals, for any other domestic wild animal or fowl. In that case, why does the Torah say, sure, ox or chamer? Famous teaching, the expression ox and donkey is used because that's usually the type of animal that would fall into somebody's cistern. is a sher or a chamer. Now, we learned earlier, he's not going to touch upon this right now, but we learned earlier a famous teaching of our sages that sher, that we learned from the word sher, ox, meaning an ox, but not a human being. So that there is a divine decree that if a human being falls into somebody's cistern and dies, that there's no liability. And we'll talk about this later. Chamer, donkey, velekelem, and not utensils. There's no liability if somebody's utensil falls into a pit he created. Now, I do want to explain briefly that there's a famous teaching which says that there are two things a human being is responsible for and has ownership over, even though he doesn't really have ownership over. One of these two things. One is chametz Pesach. A Jew cannot, by Torah law, own chametz on Pesach because he's a Jew. Nevertheless, if a Jew does own chametz on Pesach, he violates. So he's not really owning it, but from a perspective of liability, he owns it. The other is, if somebody creates a public nuisance, such as digging a pit for a cistern, in a public domain, we say, it's your pit, it's your cistern, even though it's not yours, it's public property, it's yours from a perspective of responsibility. This law applies. When somebody digs this cistern, opens this pit in the public domain, where he creates a public nuisance, or it also applies, if he opens this pit, he digs the pit in his own property, provided that, he opens it to the public domain, so anybody, any animal can wander in there, he opens it to somebody else's yard, to his neighbor's courtyard, and the guy's animal fell in. So that is considered public nuisance, either because in the first scenario, it's in the public domain. In the second scenario, the neighbor or public people can wander there. There's no barrier. Or another scenario. He dug the pit, opened it to his property, and he created a declaration of Hefker. He said, my property is ownerless. Come and get it. Whoever wants it can have, can have it. But he did not declare public the sister, only his property. He still maintains liability for the damage this sister, which is now in public property, will cause. But if the following scenario, scenario happens, in if he declared public property, both his domain, his yard, and the pit, or he declared public property, the sister in his domain, or he sanctified it, and gave it to the Holy Temple, is now exemption, as it says in the Torah, the master, the owner of the sister, shall pay. Only, we learn from this, it has to be a sister or a pit, or a stumbling block, that has ownership. This has been declared ownerless. And when he did it, he did it with permission, because it was his. Therefore, he doesn't have the liability as if he dug a pit in the public domain, because when he dug it, it was private domain. Now, this applies to whether one actually goes and digs a pit, or a cistern, or it got dug on its own. Or a domestic or wild animal dug it, makes no difference who dug it. Being that as the owner, he is 
obligated to fill it or to cover it. And he did not do so. The Torah holds him liable for any damage. This applies to one who digs the pit. Someone who buys a pit. Or somebody was given a pit as a gift. The Torah clearly states, The owner of this cistern shall pay. It doesn't matter how it got to you. What matters is that you now own it. This also applies to one who digs the pit. Or he didn't dig it. There was a pit and it was covered, but he uncovered it. The Torah specifically says that. As it says, If a man shall open a pit, it was covered and he opened it. So walking down the street, there's a cistern or a pit. It's responsibly covered. There's a manhole over it. He goes and removes the manhole. That's classic. Or he will dig. Whether he opens an existing pit or he digs a new one, makes no difference. However, if he dug a pit or opened a pit, and then he closed it responsibly. Even though the cover that he used gave way, it rotted. And then an ox fell in while Mason died. Why? Because the cover didn't last as long as it was supposed to, which means when he did it, it was good. But unbeknownst to him, termites ate it. Potter is exempt. He's liable, he doesn't cover it. But if he covered it, Potter is exempt. The plot thickens. What if he used a cover that could withstand the weight of an ox? Or oxen? Which is pretty serious weight, by the way. You ever see an ox and weight watchers? Never. But this cover is not strong enough to withstand the weight of a camel, which is more than the weight of an ox. And camels walked over it, and it was not made to hold the weight of camels. So what happened to this covering? It became weakened. Then, following the camels, the oxen trudged over it, but the oxen fell in. So as far as he's concerned, he did a good job. He made it strong enough to withhold the weight of oxen. Little did he know the camels would come there. He hasn't seen a camel in years here. If there are not commonly present camels in that place, he didn't need to expect camels on his apartheid's exam because he covered it strong enough to hold to withhold the weight of oxen. So when a camel goes and weakens it, if this, this would be considered out of his control. Who knew the camels were coming? But if even, sometimes, even in incidental times, camels would show up there, especially if they called the camel back road, he is obligated, he should have known that camels would come. And he should have protected against the idea that camels would come, weaken the covering, and an ox would fall in there. Now, there's an interesting note here. That says, we just finished saying that if he didn't expect the camels, the camels came, they weakened it, and then the ox came. He's not responsible because he didn't expect the camels. What if the camels weakened it and the camel itself fell in? Here he has to maintain liability. Because whether he expected the camel or not, the camel came. Hey, What if the cover decayed from within? An oxen fell in. Even though there are always camels there, it had to be stronger. It was not strong enough to hold camels, but it was strong enough to hold oxen. Being that the reason the oxen fell in is because it rotted, it decayed. And he's a part of his example because he did a good job for camels. All similar situations are the same. If somebody discovers a pit or a cistern, he covers it. And then he goes and uncovers it. Walking down the street, he says, oh my, look at this, a cistern. He opens it up to see, maybe there's gold there. No gold, he closes it. And then he uncovers it. The original owner who left it uncovered, I think I said this wrong, let me start again. If somebody finds an open pit, he covers it. So now it's not open. He then uncovers it, restoring it to its original state of uncovered. The original owner is liable. The second guy didn't do anything. He covered it, but uncovered it, and left it as it was. Stone may be offered, however, if he sealed it with earth, with dirt, with soil, because of a hatred called and then he went and dug up the earth. Well, that's a different ballgame. Now the guy who dug up his own earth is obligated to keep it to stone. But offered because once he seals it with soil, the stalic miseration, the liability of the first is gone. He uncovers it, it's his liability. Zion Be'er Shoshne Shutopin. What if there are two partners in the creation of this pit, or cistern, or liability, or public nuisance? The first partner walked by, saw it uncovered, and didn't do anything about it. Hashani, the second partner, walked by Belechiso and he didn't uncover it. Can you say the first left it to the second and therefore the first is exempt from liability and only the second is liable? No. They're both liable. Harish and Chayyab, the first one, is also liable, say the commentators. Until he takes the pail, which in this scenario they used to cover it. He took the covering pail, gave it to the second guy, assuming the second guy would cover it. Then the first loses his liability. Once the first guy gives his covering pail to the second guy too. Draw water with or whatever, Nifter Harishin, the first guy is exempt because I gave my cover to you, the first guy says to the second guy. And only the second has liability because he's obligated to cover it. He saw what the first guy covered it. Over Hashani, the second guy came and saw him, he found it uncovered with Lake And he did not cover it, but the first guy did. Somehow he got uncovered. Hashani, Chayyab. Here in this scenario, only the second guy is liable. 
How long will only the second guy be liable? Until it comes to the attention of the first partner that, hey, my cistern is uncovered. And he has enough time to hire workers. And to cut, if need be, cedar wood. Cedar wood is strong and big. But any animal which will perish during the time that it will take for him to find out. Higher workers have been covered with cedar wood. But only the second owner is liable, the second partner. But anything that will perish in it. After that time, they're both liable. Because the fact is that they are both guilty of negligence. Excuse me. What if somebody hands over his sister, his pit, to a bailey, to a watchman? He says, here, watch my pit. He hires a guard. Security. Now the watchman is liable. But if the owner of the pit handed it over to someone not responsible, such as a deaf mute, such as somebody mentally unstable or a minor, even though he left it covered, the owners maintain liability. Because you know and I know that the pit is going to be uncovered. The Elu Eibah and these people do not have financial. I'm sorry, do not have mental or emotional maturity to take responsibility. What if somebody has an exposed pit? He takes his friend's pail, unbeknownst to his friend, he takes Moshe's big pail, Moshe's big garbage pail, or water drawing pail, covers it. Okay, now my pit is covered. Bob Aladli, innocently, the owner of that pail comes along, but not called Olya, and takes his pail. It's my pail. I need it to draw water. Bal Haber Chayiv, the owner, the creator of the cistern, the master of the cistern, is now liable, even though he covered it. He covered it with somebody else's pail. Now, we're not talking about a specific kind of pit. We're talking about whether somebody digs what we call a cistern, a ditch, a cave, a trench. Call it what you like, as long as it's dangerous. In that case, why does the Torah choose the word bear, which means pit? A pit connotates depth. It has to, be, has to contain enough, enough, enough depth to kill. How much is enough depth in order to be able to kill? How much is that? Says the Rambam, a minimum of 10 handbreaths deep. If it's more than 10 handbreaths deep, then animals could be killed in it. We learned earlier, according to the Kahat Chumash, when there's a chart in the back, a handbreadth is 3.15 inches times 10, 31 and a half inches. About two and a half feet deep, that's the minimum, of course, it could be much more than that. That could kill. But if it was less than 10 handbreadths, less than 31 and a half inches, and an ox or any other animal fell in, whether it's domestic, high, wild, or bird, and died, it's a freak accident. But there he's exempt, because he didn't have to expect an animal to die in a cistern less than 10 handbreadths deep. However, that is if they died. He's exempt, not liable. What if they were just hurt? Uh, hurt is different. No matter how deep it is or how shallow it is, the owner of this nuisance is liable for damages. Now, we get technical. We say it needs 10 handbreadths. What if it was only 9 handbreadths? And it had, in addition to the 9 handbreadths of airspace, one of water. Not only is a handbreadth of water considered equivalent to a handbreadth of air, but it's considered equivalent to two handbreadths of air. So it's more than enough. What if it was only 8 deep? plus two handbreadths of water, or seven handbreadths deep, and three handbreadths water. And an ox fell in, a similar animal, and died. Here he's not liable, because the water, I guess, should protect it. We can talk about Sandizik, but if the recipient, if the, the victim of the damage grabbed money belonging to the perpetrator, and the other, we don't force it away from him. Why? Because as we learn in great detail in the Talmud, there's actually doubt and different opinions about the liability of Eight handbreadths of airspace, two of water, seven of airspace, three of water, and we're not sure, yes or no, and therefore the answer is not liable. But if he grabs property belonging to the perpetrator, then he gets to keep it. We learned similar laws earlier. Now we have different scenarios, or as I like to say, the plot thickens even more. One man, one person digs a pit, ten handbreadths deep. Another one comes in, digs it even deeper, makes it twenty handbreadths deep. A third guy comes in, digs even deeper, goes down to thirty handbreadths. Being that they all have their own ten, ten plus ten plus ten, each one is liable. They have partnership in their liability. But if the scenario is different, the first guy dug nine or less, 
nine hand breaths. He was less than ten, even one hand breath. And then the second guy came and made it ten. Whether he dug a hand breath going from nine to ten, or there's another way of doing it. He builds a wall on top of a hand breath, making it the same depth. If you have a little rim on top of a hand breath big, it's also from the top of the rim to the bottom of the nine. Same deal. The second one is culpable. What if he closed, he filled that one hand breath that he had it, or he built the rim. What if he unbuilt that, he destroyed it? He dismantled it. Here we're unsure. In whether because he made it from 9, 10, even though he undid this now, returns to 9, whether he already undid the act of the first, or not, and we're really unsure of the liability here. Therefore, neither of the people who dug the system can be held liable. And according to the views that maintain that a person who seizes property, when an unresolved doubt exists, is allowed to maintain possession. If the person whose property was damaged seizes property from either or both of these people, he's entitled to maintain the possession. What if the first guy dug a very deep well, a very deep, deep pit, and the second guy came to and broadened it, made it wider. The first guy dug a pit which was deep enough to cause to wreak havoc. The second guy came and made it wider. And an ox fell in and died. So here the Rambam is going to get into a different, interesting scenario. The Rambam is going to explain, based upon the teachings in the oral law, that there are two possible reasons why an animal which falls into a cistern would die. One is it gets hurt and dies. It gets killed. It gets hazets and cop. That can ruin your whole day. But there's another possibility. And that is it did not die from the bruise or the wound or the hit or the, tra- or the trauma. What happened is the air in this cistern is toxic. And the toxic air killed the animal. Fumes or not enough air, whatever the deal is. So that's another possibility. Now, these two possibilities work out quite differently in this scenario, where it's deep enough to begin with and the second guy widens it. Because as he will say, if the guy widened it, if the ox died from toxic air, well, he's helping the toxic air. He's getting more air in there. So he's certainly not creating a bigger problem. But if it died from a trauma, then he's widening the possible area of the trauma. This is what we're going to learn now. If the animal that fell in there died due to the poison air in there, the toxic air, then the one who widened it is exempt from liability. If anything, he reduced the toxicity of the air by putting more space in. But if he died because of the trauma of falling, then the second one is also liable. Because he made it more available, more, he made it closer, more likely that somebody will fall in. Similarly speaking, if the animal fell in from the side that the second guy widened, that was his access, surely the second one is culpable even if he died from toxic air. Because he brought it closer. Even though he didn't die from the trauma, he died from the toxicity of the air. But if the animal fell in from the original side that the first guy dug, then the culpability, the liability is only for the first. Because if anything, being that the animal died from poison or toxic air, the second guy reduced that, if anything, by widening it and having more air coming. You dial in here, the Rambam lays the law down, the axiom, a pit, a cistern, that the Torah gives liability for, even if the animal that fell in only died from its air, because the air is toxic or poison, or killer, uh, I guess we talk about uh, air quality, AQMD. You have uh, bad air. Needless to say, if it died from the trauma, either way. Therefore, the Rambam is going to lay the rule down. When you have as much depth as you have width, that allows air to come in. For example, if it's 10 hand breaths deep, and it's 10 hand breaths wide, no problem. If it's 10 feet deep and 10 feet wide, no problem. The air is not going to be toxic. Because there's enough air getting in there to clean it. And in this case, where the width is like the depth, or more, if the animal did not hurt itself from the trauma of falling, but it died from another reason, from air, from toxic air, butter is exempt, because he created it in such a way that the air should not be toxic. And if it died, it was a freak accident. But if the depth was more than the width, usually we got a problem. Yes, it's possible to die from toxic air. And if an animal dies, is culpable, even though it didn't hit itself, hit its head or whatever. Now, if you think this only applies to pits, not so. It applies to mounds as well. Also, if somebody created a mound, that's high. And the animal slams into it and dies. The animal was not expecting a mount. 
If it had a minimum height of 10 handbreadths, 31.50 inches or higher, he's obligated to pay. If the animal dies, if it was less than 10 handbreadths, he's exempt for the death of an animal, although who's a couple of only damage, he has to pay the full damage. Even if the mound is only a little high, or the pit is only a little deep. Because people do get, because animals do get hurt, even with slight indentations or slight elevations. I'm sorry, but death does not happen unless there's at least 10 handbreadths deep or high. Otherwise, it's considered an accident. The bear, so also he's not culpable, he's not liable for the death of an animal in a cistern. Or if it was hit the tail in a mound, and this is a very important law, it's going to flip everything around now. The liability does not exist. Unless the animal was a small animal, a baby animal. A chareshes, or a deaf animal, a shaker, or a mentally imbalanced animal, a sumo, or a blind animal. A shanoklobalayla, or it happened at night. But if it was a mature, healthy, responsible animal, and it was daylight, if it was healthy, and it fell in during the day, the visibility was good, everything was fine. What is the animal, stupid? The animal shouldn't fall in, shouldn't get hurt. Potter is not liable. Because this is considered an accident. Because the normal routine of an animal, the normal nature of an animal is it sees, and it avoids stumbling blocks. So, there has to be something wrong, or, in the simplest terms, it has to be at night. Similarly speaking, I also touched upon this earlier. If a person fell in and died, I feel like I assume even if the person was blind, the person fell in at night, whether it was a free man. And therefore, the halacha says that the court has to estimate it. A ebed or a slave, and the court says he has to pay 30 selah. The Torah says he has to pay 30 selah. In any event, he's exempt. Because people do not fall into pits, and if they do, there's no liability. Why? There is no why. Because the Torah says so. Sure, below Adam, as I explained earlier. The verse says, ox, ox, and not man. That's if he dies. Who's like by Adam? But if he was wounded, if he was hurt, or a healthy animal, he's obligated to pay 100% of the damage to make sure they are no. Because we're talking about damage and not death. What if the ox that fell in was a sacrifice which became disqualified due to the fact that it was, it was discovered to be blemished? So it's a unfit sacrifice. He's now exempt. Because this is not even the property of the owner. In order to maintain liability, the person has to be able to keep the corpse. This exempts someone who has a corpse that is forbidden to derive any benefit from the dinah she cover. The law is it should be buried. So therefore, no ownership, no liability. Interesting scenario. A person was digging a pit, let's say in the public domain. As he's standing there in the street, and an animal falls into this pit, because of the noise and the balagan of the digging. The animal died. If the animal died, as it fell forward, Chayav is obligated. But if it fell backwards, it got scared, and reared backwards, and fell, and died, but it is exempt. Because the Torah says, and it fell, the falling direction has to be normal, not backwards. What if it fell frontwards, from the noise of this digging? I guess he had one of those machines, they go, they must have had that before, there was mechanical stuff. Outside the pit, and died. The court does not obligate him, because he fell outside the pit. The animal fell, but outside the pit. But if the victim, owner, grants property belonging to the perpetrator, we don't forcibly remove it. But if it fell backwards outside the pit and was damaged or died, the owner of the pit is completely exempt. Here's the scenario. An ox pushed an animal into a pit, and the animal died. So here we have two parties who are liable. One is the owner of the ox. Your ox pushed my animal in. The other is the owner of the pit into my pit. If this ox has been forewarned, we know it's an ox that does damage. It has pushed animals earlier into stuff. Then The truth is that both these people, the owner of the ox and the owner of the pit, are liable 100%. But being that there were two perpetrators, they split the difference. The owner of the pit pays half. The owner of the ox pays half. Because it was forewarned. But if it was not forewarned, meaning the ox never did something like this before, or didn't usually, the owner of the ox has to only pay half of his liability. What did we say earlier? His liability is half, because the owner of the pit has the other half. But here he has half of half. 
because he's not been proven to do this, so he pays 25%. But should we say the owner of the pit only pays half? No, because the owner of the pit, they're both 100% liable. In this case, because it was a tom, it was diminished to a half of that liability. Because there are two people, it was diminished to a half, a half of a half is a quarter. But in the case of the owner of the pit, he pays three quarters, 75%, and if need be, from the best of his possessions. How does that make sense? Because the owner of the carcass says to the owner of the pit, whenever my loss from a living animal to a dead animal is, that's what you owe me. Even though it was mature and healthy, it was daylight, because it was pushed. It's considered as if it was pushed in at night. Therefore, he says, whatever I can get out of the owner of the ox, I'm going to get, which in this case was 25%. You've got to pay the balance. Because in theory, you're 100% liable. So also, if somebody places a rock on top of a pit. Give me one second, please. If somebody places a rock on a pit. There was a sister and he placed a rock on a nice solid rock. Along comes an ox and tripped on the rock. And then fell into the pit, the sister. Fell into the pit while Mason died. So, who's responsible? Well, it's half half. The guy who put the rock in a stupid way, he has to pay him. And the owner of the pit has to pay him. Again, dual liability. So also the ox belonging to a private person. An ox that was disqualified as a sacrifice. They both simultaneously gored or pushed an animal into the pit. If the regular citizen's ox was not forewarned, he has to pay him. If he was forewarned, he has to pay the whole thing. What about the fact that there's a partner ox? Well, the partner ox has no ownership, so it has no liability. Because the victim says, the owner of the victim ox says, I'll get anything I can out of this guy, and the rest comes from you. But the truth is he can't get anything out of the other ox. The whole part of being that is public. It's holy temple domain, he's exempt. You have to pay everything. The closing paragraph of chapter 12. Here's a wild scenario. Someone was digging a pit in a public domain, which is an inexcusable thing. And as he's digging the pit, somebody's ox falls upon him and kills him. I guess the ox didn't expect somebody to be half in a pit or whatever. The owner of the ox is exempt. Because what are you doing digging the pit? Furthermore, if the ox dies as he fell on the person and killed him, then the owner of the ox can take the money for his dead ox from the estate, from the heirs of the owner of the pit or cistern. End of chapter 12. Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchais Niske Moming, the laws of financial damages, damage to one's finances. Pedic Shleish, also chapter 13. Now we talked earlier that there's a traditional teaching when the verse talks about bear, a pit, a cistern. And the verse says, and an ox or a donkey falls in. So we have a tradition that the word ox teaches us any kind of animal. Why does it say ox? An ox, but not a human being. There's no liability if a human being falls in and gets killed. We talked about that earlier. A donkey and not utensils. That's a basic premise in the teachings of Tractate Bobakam. So now he goes on to say, Kalim, utensils. Which fell into a pit or a cistern, which somebody created in a public domain. When they broke, I would think the person who created the cistern should be liable. The answer is no. The owner of the cistern is exempt. He's not liable. Why? Shenemar, as the verse says, an ox or a donkey falls in. From the oral law, we learned, an ox and not a person, a donkey and not utensils. So that by Torah decree, utensils which fall into a pit, which someone creates, the person is not liable for the damage to the utensils. Furthermore, even if an ox fell in, and for the ox there is liability, and it had a lot of utensils latent on it, and the ox died, and the utensils broke, I would think guilty is guilty, culpable is culpable, liable is liable. No. He's culpable and liable for the animal. Exempt for the utensils because of this divine decree. Now, every one of these primary sources of damage have derivatives. Beis haber, the category of pit or cistern, may aves nizikin, who it is a primary source of damage. 
every of every primary source has tail days or tail days has offspring. The tail days of Kamehu and its offspring, Muadin Mitriloson, like the pit itself, are always forewarned, unlike an ox, which is sometimes forewarned for matters of treading and eating, for example, and sometimes not forewarned for matters of goring unless he does it three times. In the case of the cistern, a person is always forewarned. Now, what are the offshoots? What are the derivatives? The chol hameniach, takola, anybody who places any type of takola, any type of object that could bring about damage, like an obstacle, that is an example of the derivative of a pit. Any type of obstacle. And therefore, if man receives damage because of this obstacle, and the fact that we said earlier that man is exempt, that's only if the man dies. But we learned earlier, if the man is damaged, there is liability. The person who put the obstacle is culpable to pay 100% of the damage. So if somebody left a brick in a public property, probably a public domain, somebody left a rock, someone left anything that is not to be expected to be there, and a person gets hurt, that is the derivative of whether he pronounced this obstacle as ownerless property, he says, come and get it, it's not mine anymore, whether he didn't, because it makes no difference. He had no right to create an obstacle in a public domain. However, being that this is an offshoot of the derivative of cistern and pit, of bear, if a person's utensils were harmed by this obstacle, property is exempt. Why? Because of that verse in the Torah. Gimel, three, Kesaj, for example, spell it out. If somebody puts down Abnei, his stone, a rock, a sakine or his knife, a tivne or a bundle of straw, a masoi or his backpack, his burden, or anything similar, whether a man or an animal, something got hurt, or someone got hurt, there's a liability to pay 100% of the damage. So also, if the person put it down in his own domain, we said earlier, a person is not liable for people getting hurt in his own domain, but he pronounced his domain as public property. He removed ownership from it. The Lehifkiron did not remove ownership from the obstacle, so the obstacle is his. The property is now open to the public. Niskal Bekarka. I'm sorry, so he's culpable. Now he says, Niskal Bekarka. If he was hurt on this earth, on this ground, or he received damage by this obstacle, and hurt by it, the person who placed the obstacle is there, is responsible. But, as per the above, if utensils became damaged, a nitonfu or nitonfu or became soiled, butter, in the case of bear or its offspring, damage of utensils are always exempt from liability. If a person brought his ox into someone else's yard without permission, so I bring my ox into your yard without permission. The hirbids gilolim, and the ox did what oxen do. It defecated all over the place. And the utensils of the guy who owns the yard became very dirty. Dirty is an understatement. Butter is exempt, because this goes back to the principle of chamer v'lekelem. Because this type of damage by an ox is not ox-type damage, but it's more cistern. It's more obstacle-type damage. We never find a pit or a cistern-type damage where there is liability for utensils. So even in this case, the ox didn't kick it, it didn't break it, it didn't eat it, it didn't gore it. Defecation is an outgrowth of of obstacle. Hey, what if somebody put down a picture in the public domain? Somebody's walking in the public domain. He tripped on this picture. He broke it. He's exempt. He's exempt. Who's exempt? The passerby is exempt from breaking somebody else's picture. Because people are not to be expected to look at every inch of where they're walking. Pictures don't belong in the middle of the street. What if the guy got hurt by the picture? We'll go a step further and we'll say that the owner of the picture is culpable for damages. Even if he declared it ownerless, because if anybody creates an obstacle and then declares it ownerless, but the creation of the obstacle was without the right to do so in that domain, he's culpable as if he didn't pronounce them ownerless. He can't pronounce an obstacle ownerless. What if he put this picture down in a place where he did have permission to do so? For example, the marketplace before the wine vat or a similar place because that's a normal place to put your picture where you're going to get wine or before the beehives where you're going to get honey that's where you put your picture down because you're going to buy wine or honey. 
and somebody tripped on it, Rishi Bren broke it. Chayav, then the passerby is culpable, because that's the place where one should expect to see pictures. What if the guy's walking in and got hurt by it? The owner of the picture is not culpable, because the guy has to look where he's walking. That's a place where he should expect pictures to be. The work was dark. The more there were pictures all over the road. I guess there was a backup of pictures. Everybody came to buy wine. Talk to Rashmi also here. He's exempt because he has no place to walk. In this Kabbalah, if he tripped on it, the owner of the picture is culpable. And Kabbalah, it was a similar situation. Have similar outcomes. Zayin, Nishbala Kabbalah, Bishur Salaba, a person's picture broke in a public domain. And somebody slipped on the water. It's a very common process. Somebody drops something, spills, and the person slips on the liquid. Or he got cut by the shards, the sharp edges of the broken picture. He's exempt from human law. Why? Because it was an accident. But he is liable from God's law. Because by God's law, he should have removed the shards of the broken picture. He should have cleaned up the water. The shards and the water are like publicly declared property. The reason it became public is because an accident happened. So a person is walking down the street, he drops a picture, it's an accident. Should he clean it up? Yes, he should, but he doesn't have to. That's why he's exempt from human law. In this case, in this case, he intended to acquire the broken shards, and someone else got hurt by it. That's ownership. He's culpable. The same law applies if somebody's camel fell down in the middle of the road, and he didn't lift it up, and he had opportunity to. And then somebody went and tripped on the camel. You know, you read about these car accidents, or truck accidents that happen in, in, in foggy weather on the freeways. You have 18 tractor trailers hitting one another. A tractor trailer is like a camel. It gets stuck in the middle of the freeway. You don't expect it to be there, so the next tractor trailer slams into it. You know, all these laws have contemporary equivalents. You have 45 car pileups. And if utensils get hurt in any of the above scenarios, but he's exempt. Whether he pronounced them public property or not, to as we explained. Now is a situation where two potters, two pottery merchants, that were traveling, one following the other. Like you follow somebody on the freeway. And the first one tripped and fell. And the second one doesn't expect the first guy to be there, comes crashing into him. Happens on the freeway every day. If the first guy could have stood up and he didn't, the first one is culpable for the damage of the second. Why? Although it's not his fault when he fell, it was an accident. But it is his fault, it is his fault, the fact that he's still there. What is the rule on freeways today? Clear the road as soon as you can. Get a tow truck there and clear the road. In this case, he could stand up. The potter, the pottery merchant, should have stood up and gotten off the road. But if he wasn't able to, potter, then he's exempt. Then it's not his fault. The other guy hit him. Even though he didn't do anything to warn the oncoming potter. You know, he should put up a sign. He should yell, hey, I'm in the road, or do whatever he has to do. These days they put up red caution flags. If they shoot, Toru would been option. Why didn't he warn the guy? Because he's got his own problems, because he just fell and broke all of his pots. Test my medwara mamur when does this apply? Shukhaibin is up shoshani. That the guy who fell first is culpable and liable for the damage to the second guy who ran into him. Kisha who's a gufe shoshani when the body of the first person was hurt, so he actually got hurt. Avalam who's kukela, but we're talking about his pots got hurt. It's the same deal. Utensils are exempt in the case of pit. Potter is exempt. Because across the board, utensils are exempt from liability in the case of a pit or any other type of obstacle. The Chotzakola told his Baruch. Obstacles are an offspring of pit, of sister. As we explained, Yud, Hakadorim, Potters, Veha, Zagogim, Glass Blowers, and other similar trades. They were following one another. Again, like cars traveling on the road, following one another. The first guy tripped and fell. So the second guy went crashing into him. And he hit him. And then the third guy came crashing into the second guy. And every one of them could have stood up, but they didn't. And that's the key, because there's liability. The first guy who fell is culpable, is liable for the damage of the body of the second guy, not the pots, but the body. Whether he got hurt on the body of the first person, or he got hurt by his load. The second guy is liable for the damage to the body of the third guy. If he got hurt on the body of the second. But in this case, if the third guy got hurt on the load of the second guy, he's exempt. Because the second guy can say to him, this is a derivative of pit. Because it's my... Burden. It's, it's what I'm carrying. I'm not the one who dug this pit, so to speak. I didn't create this nuisance. Because it's the first guy that did it. I fell on the first guy. He dug this pit. 
His heroes as ever. What another Colombian in the world is empty without eleven? No politician. What if the first guy fell by a mutual chayma derech across the road, blocking the whole road, like they say on the traffic, blocking all the lanes? The niskel echad bereisha, and one guy got hurt on the head of the guy who fell. Mechad beraglav, one guy got hurt on the feet of the guy who fell. Mechad bekitnei, one guy on his belly. There was a real traffic jam, a sigilert. Harei who chayiv beniskei kulon. That's the way they call it in California, anyway. He is culpable for the damage of all of them because he's laying there on the road. Why? This is the key. He could have stood up and he didn't. What if somebody pours water into a public domain? And somebody else was hurt by it. A person is liable for the water that he spills in a public domain. But if his utensils got sullied and dirty, he's exempt. Why? Because bear is always exempt from responsibility for Kalim. Because a pit or cistern is always exempt from the responsibility of damage done to utensils. If the water was swallowed up in the earth, and the earth remained slippery. I was always wondering when I went over bridges in New Jersey. There was always a sign to this day I couldn't figure it out. It would say slippery when wet. Look at that. Of course it's slippery when you think it's slippery when it's dry. <laughs> it was slippery when it was wet. The hook lock and he slipped. The knock and he fell. The hook lock got hurt on the ground. The guy who spilled the water is culpable. Why? Because slippery when wet. People have a habit where they open up their sewage vats and rake out their cesspools. Remember, we're very spoiled. We have what's called plumbing. We have pipes where the waste go and go and go and end up wherever they end up. I think in the ocean. But those people who open up their sewage vats, their, their sewage vats, and they rake out their cesspools. Many of the properties where we are right now, we used to have a cesspool and we used to have various private stuff that we used to call companies to come and clean out. What if you just send it into the street? No one has a right to do that in the summer because you really mess up the public. But in the rainy season, it's raining anyway. It's a mess out there anyway. The water will wash it. Yes, one they have permission. The Apa became permission from today till tomorrow. Nevertheless, permission does not exempt one from liability. If a person slipped by your sewage water, there's full culpability. And a person should not bring out his straw. And hey, into the public domain, why would you want to do that? Today, should be also laid because that's the way they used to make fertilizer. They would take straw and hay and have the traffic tread on it, and it would really soften it up. And then they would be able to use it for ground cover. We might see if he did, our sages find him, he can't maintain ownership. He can't retain ownership. Anybody who takes it can keep it. And as soon as they became stepped on enough where they have value, because it could be used for ground cover, fertilizer, anybody could take it. That's the punishment, because we don't want stuff sitting around in the public domain. But if somebody went and acquired it as soon as it was taken out, He's like, he shouldn't, but the other, we can't forcibly remove it. Even though they are like they have been made public. But if somebody got hurt, whether man or beast, remember we said, damage is culpable for damage of man as well. Not death, but, but damage. The one who puts it out is culpable. A person has the right, and again, this is not in our culture. It sounds alien to us. Then again, we have a different culture. What do we do today when we want to buy fertilizer? We call a fertilizer company and we buy fertilizer. Back then, they didn't have fertilizer companies. Back then, you created your own fertilizer. How did you create your own fertilizer? Because you had your own animals. Everybody can take their manure, their compost, C-O-M-P-O-S-T, compost, into the public domain when everyone else does it. To collect it there for 30 days. What do you gain by taking your fertilizer out to the public domain? Because you want people to tread on it. You want animals to tread on it. That's what process is it. Nevertheless, despite the fact that he has a right to do so in season, in his, if it hurts someone, there is liability. And being that the person has license to do so, if somebody takes it, he's a thief. There's no fine here because it doesn't really improve. It just gets processed. A person should not mix or soak mortar in public property. Nor should bricks be made in public property because it's dangerous. It's an, it impedes the public. However, one may mix mortar in the public property, but not bricks. And again, this is responsibility for people who are in the construction business. When you're in the construction business, what's the first thing you should ask your contractor? Can I see your certificate of liability insurance? If something happens, do you have a way to pay me? Why? Because in construction, stuff happens. And that's what we're about to learn now. If somebody builds in the public domain, maybe the one 
who brings the stones, and they bring the stones, and the one who builds the stones into a wall, and they build, and anyone who does damage, are responsible to pay 100% of the damage they build. You're doing construction in, private, in public property, you are responsible for damages. Back then it was before they had insurance companies. But today we have insurance companies. You, you should not be a builder if you don't want to take responsibility. What if the guy, his job is he use rocks out of stone quarries, stones out of quarries. So that's what he does. That's what he does. And then he gives the stone. Lissatos to the stone cutter. When a man or animal gets hurt, the cutter is responsible. And when the cutter gives it to the trucker, I'm just kidding about the trucker. The donkey driver, now the donkey driver is responsible. The truck driver needs insurance. What if the trucker gives it to the porter who unloads the truck? What if the guy unloads the donkey, the porter? Now has it, and he hurts someone. The porter is liable. If the porter gives it to the builder, the builder is liable. What if the builder gives it to the finisher who puts it exactly where it should be? Then that guy is culpable. If after it was put exactly in the place where it's supposed to be in the building, it fell and it hurt someone. And they were all contractors. They're all, they're all liable, as I like to say. Sue everybody. Just kidding. But if they're being hired, then the last one is culpable. We'll pull up through them and all are exempt because they're not contractors. They are rather hired workers. If you have a wall or a tree that fell into public property and brought damage, they're exempt. Even though he made them public. They're not like a pit. Because they were not there to begin with to create damage. This was a wall that was functioning as a wall. It was a tree that was functioning as a tree and it fell into public property. But if it was weak, shock. So even the court gives him X amount of time to strengthen the tree, release it as our basil, and to, I'm sorry, to cut down the tree, to knock down the wall, so that a certain amount of time is given, which, you know, building and safety does today. They'll give you 30 days to accomplish something. The comma has man, how much time? Fleshing in 30 days. Not will be man, and if within the 30 days they fell, he's equal and they did damage, part of his exempt, because he had the 30 days. Lacha has man after the time, Chayav is culpable, because he waited till after the time that was given to him by the courts. We see how many of the laws today are, are literally taken from these laws. It's, it's mind-boggling. What if somebody takes thorns that are really sharp and they can hurt people, or things, or glass shards, and he hides them? That's what people do. Or a person makes a fence of thorns. And they project into the public domain. Somebody was hurt by these thorns. He is liable to pay 100% of the damages. Why? Because obviously he didn't hide them well enough. However, if he makes a fence of thorns within his property, he's exempt. Because I don't have to be concerned that somebody's going to rub his body against my wall. It's my wall. It's not protruding into the public domain. What if somebody buries his thorns and his glass shards? He buries it in his friend's wall. He figures this is going to be safe. I'll put it in somebody else's wall. Now, unbeknownst to the guy whose wall it was, he has no idea that these dangerous things are there. So the owner of the wall came to Sosa Desplay and knocked down his wall in Apollo Shusarab. And these dangerous shards or thorns fell into public domain because they wreaked havoc in Kaisal Ruhaya. If it was a weak wall to begin with, and the guy who put it there is culpable because he should have known that the wall is going to be torn down in Kaisal Bariu, but it was a nice, healthy, normal wall. The owner of the wall is culpable because you've got to be careful. You've got to see what you're knocking down. You've got to check it out. Chabes, in fact, the early pious men, pious men of the older generations, of former generations, would conceal thorns, and glass. Within their fields, it's at least three handbreadths of the ground, which is 10 to 12 inches below ground level. Bury it. Deeper than the plow. That the plow should not even raise them up. Others would consume them in flame. Some would throw them into the sea, or the nor into the river. Bottom line is, in order that no one should be hurt. Let's say you break a glass. What do you do with the glass? You put it in the garbage. No, you've got to wrap it in something and put it in the garbage in case someone is going to be going through the garbage. Not so simple. A person should not clear stones from his private property into public property, nor should one dig a trench under a tunnel, under private property, or cavity cisterns, trenches. Even though the cover you put on this tunnel is strong enough for a wagon with rocks to go over and hold. Today it could be strong enough, tomorrow not. And obviously in our world today, you can't just dig a tunnel under, private, under public property. You need what they call permits. And boy, are they going to make sure that you're doing what you're doing. 
And if somebody digs a pit for public consumption, mutter, that's permissible because he's a public worker. Here's a situation where a person is doing construction in his own property, and he has a pole projecting into public property, or he has a balcony projecting into public property. Can he do that? The answer is, It has to be higher than the clearance necessary for a camel. Camels are big. And it's rider. I mean, a donkey is, is, is short. A horse, not so tall. A camel is big. You have to have clearance for a camel and its rider to go under without getting a zetzin talk. The who, provided that, if he doesn't make it dark for the people who go there. If he wants to, he can invert his own construction in his property and he can bring it out in his own property. The person wants a balcony, he'll put the balcony in his property. What if he did it and he did not bring it forth? He reserves the right to do so later. But once he does it, he can't return the wall to the boundary ever. And here's an interesting rule. Whenever there is a private road that became public use, that was used by the public, you can't just take it back one day. Also, the calculator, you can't destroy it and say, hey, I, I measured it, it's mine. It's not so simple. This is Torah law that the public got used to using this egress, this thoroughfare. What if a person buys a courtyard, and this courtyard has projections, beams, and balconies projecting into the public domain? I think that the modern word for that would be, it's grandfathered in. It's been there all this time. There's a grandfather clause. It, it is what it is. Don't worry about it. That leans toward the public domain. He trims it. How high do you have to trim it? High enough for a camel and its rider to ride under the branches of the tree. That's pretty high. And you have to leave an empty space. From the two edges of the river. In other words, you can't hug the river walk. You have to leave space on the sides of the river. Why? Because you have to leave room for the sailors who pull the boat. They used to have difficult harbors back then, so these people used to go out and stand on the side of the boats and schlep them. So you need room for the people. And any tree that's there blocking this egress, this space, has to be immediately trimmed. It's like a fire lane. We don't need warnings, we don't need notices, you go do it. Because you're holding off the people who tow the boats. The harbor has to work. In the closing paragraph of this chapter, if someone has a public road going through his field, it's what you call it right away, right of passage. The person takes the path away. He says, hey, this, is field, this path is going in my field. I'm going to rebuild the path on the side of my field, not in the middle of my field. I need this in the middle of my field. I'll move it to the side. What is the deal? The fact that he created a new public road on the side, that's now belonging to the public. The public acquired it. They have that right away. But that which he took, he doesn't acquire it because you can't easily undo something that has been known to be public property. In general, how wide is a public road? And this we learn from the law of the Cities of exile, they have to be, or, the, or the, the Jew, the encampment of the Jews in the desert, they have to be at least 16 cubits. That's how wide a public road has to be. End of chapter 13. Rambam, Hilchais Niske Momay, the laws of damage to financial holdings, or by financial holdings, paid out of Osir, chapter 14. Now we come to the laws of fire. One of the primary sources of damage is the damage brought about by flame. If somebody kindles his flame in somebody else's field, somebody lights a fire in my field. The Obra Hadlo Adlake on the fire spread. The Zikan caused damage. He has to pay 100% of the damage. Shenamar, the verse tells the story. He says, If the flame will go forth, Umatzakaitzin will find dried thorns, Menechal Godish, and a granary will be consumed, a Yakoma or standing grain. A granary is stored, harvested grain, or standing grain, the Gamer, etc. Shalim, Yishalim, Hamad, the Gamer, the one who made the fire, must pay. Because your fire is your responsibility. The Habe'ena, the Abes Nizikin, who this is of the major or prime categories of damage, as it says in the first mission of Babakama. Arbo, Obes Nizikin, there are four primary sources of damage. And Heber, Fire is one of them. They, he, what if he started the fire in his own domain? Smokey the Bear says, only you can prevent forest fires. 
in one's own domain, one must be distant from the edge of the domain. One must assure that the fire doesn't spread to the next guy's field. So you could be starting a fire in your own domain, but fire is dangerous. It spreads. What causes a fire to spread? Sometimes a natural travel of fire. Certainly wind. You know, you always hear on the radio in Southern California, which is very prone to fires. So we have a wind blowing from the west. May God protect us. How far from the boundary does one have to have distance? It depends on the height of the flame. If the flame is two inches high, you don't need a lot of distance. If the flame is 20 feet high, you need a lot of distance. 40 feet high is very Don Julius, as Alfredo says. If he didn't keep the appropriate distance according to the height of the flame, and the flame traveled, journeyed, and caused damage, you've got to pay the full damage. But if he was far enough, and the flame journeyed, the flame traveled, spread, and did damage. Is exempt. Why? Because he was far enough. What happened was a freak accident. Because this is an act of God, an act of heaven. Like the fellow said, when the synagogue burned down, our insurance, man, insurance agents told us we were not insured for acts of God. In the synagogue, not to be insured for acts of God. That was a joke. Okay. So this is called an act of God. Why? Because it wasn't expected to be able to travel that way. Suddenly a crazy wind comes. If the fire jumped a river, fires don't usually jump rivers in our world here. We talk about the fire jumped the freeway. That's a pretty big fire if it jumped the freeway. Or a rainwater reservoir. Wide eight. Amos and Amos about a foot and a half. Twelve feet wide. The fire jumped, jumped a waterway twelve feet or more. Parker is exempt unless it was expected to do that. So basically we have expected. Liable, unexpected, not liable. Gimel Obro Goder. What if the fire passed a wall? And we estimate Gave Mahagoda the height of the wall. The Gave Mahag Lake on the height of the fire. And the fuel, meaning wood or brambles that are there. That's called fuel. In Eid Ruyalava, if it can't pass this wall, Parker is exempt, even if it did. Because it was a freak. The Ruya Lava, but if professionals estimated that it can breach this wall, cross the wall, go above the wall, high of all. When does this apply? This word, this word, actually has its source in the Chumash, in Hazinu. A very piercing, a hot flame. But if we're talking about a massive flame, where it ascends upwards and wraps downward because of the height of the flame, and there was fuel, you can estimate from today to tomorrow. That's a dangerous flame. Even if it crossed a thousand cubits, which is like 1,500 feet, because fire could be very dangerous. Every fire is different. What if a fire broke out in somebody's courtyard? And a freak accident happened. The wall separating a person's courtyard to the next door courtyard just happened to fall at the same time that the fire broke out. What a coincidence. And because of that, the fire jumped into the other, spread into the other courtyard. So if he had opportunity to rebuild the wall in time and he didn't, he just said, ah, it fell. Ah, is culpable because he should have rebuilt it. What can this be analogous to? The also To a person's ox that goes out and does damage. What do you mean the ox goes out and does damage? You should watch your ox. Aha, you should watch your flame as well. If somebody sends his flame, be out straight to the cotton in the hands of a deaf mute, or a mentally imbalanced person, or a minor who should not be carrying flames, because flames are dangerous. Fire is very dangerous. I'll tell you a cute story. When my two kids were little, Yossi and Yochanan, they were less than a year apart, they were extremely adventurous, and they did all kinds of stuff. One Saturday night, I, I smell something. It's, it's, it's a little strange. And I walk into their room, and I see their smoke coming from under their bed. And I say, What's going on here? They said, Nothing. I said, What's going on here? <coughs> they were making Abdullah. <coughs> They did a children's version of Abdullah. You have to light the Abdullah, and then you put it under the bed when they heard the Tati was coming. So we almost burned the house down. So you got to make sure not to make Abdullah under the bed. They had like a bunk bed. It was a very low bed. So we took them, I took them to the fire station and spoke to the firemen and told them to show them their pictures. They, they, they educate kids. You know, the bottom line is, is that fire is dangerous. You got to teach kids. Kids are not good, daily good guardians of fire. Okay. But they grow up to be very, very fine young men. What if somebody kindled a flame in his own domain? I'm sorry, did I just jump here? Yes. I, I, I was in the end, I, I was in Halacha 5, about somebody sending his flame in the hand of an irresponsible person. He's exempt from the human court law, but he is culpable in the hands of heaven. If he gave them a coal 
and they fanned it into a flame because you didn't have to expect the coal to fan into a flame. Because a normal coal will be extinguished before it fans into a flame. It's, you have to know what you're doing to fan a coal into a flame. But if he gives an irresponsible person, a child, a flame, he is culpable. Because his deeds cause the damage. What if he sent the flame in the hands of a healthy, responsible person? This healthy, responsible person now started a fire. He is culpable. The one who sent him is exempt. So also be appointed a watchman to watch the flame. The watchman is liable. Now the guy can say, wait a minute, what are you talking about? This guy gave me the flame. He made me an, uh, a proxy. He gave me a job to do. I have to do it. So we say to him, The words of the teacher and the words of the student, who do you listen to? God forbids causing damage. You say this guy sent you. You don't have to listen to everything everybody tells you. We have to take responsibility for our actions. We can't say, I only work here. That's the old question. In, in, in war, is the soldier guilty because he was just following orders? First and foremost, we have to follow Hashem's orders. Hashem says, don't make fires. All right, what if you have shared culpability? One guy brought the fire. The other guy brought the fuel, the wood. The fire was already there. The guy who brings the wood is liable. One guy brought the wood. The second guy brought the fire. In this case, the wood was there first. The fire came afterwards. The one who brings the light, the fire is culpable. The third guy comes and fans the flame. The guy who fans the flame is liable. What if an unpredictable wind fanned the flame? They're all exempt because it was a freak accident that made it happen. What if he fanned it and the wind helped? He's culpable because he helped. Because he indirectly caused it. Anybody who is actually directly caused it, a direct cause, the Shalom Nezek Shalom, is responsible to pay the full amount of the damage. If he doesn't have the cash, they can take the best of his possessions. Like any other liability, of one who does damage, Ches, Asha, Yotza, if a flame bursts forth, the Ochlan consumed eight in wood, a Yavonim or stone, a offer or earth. The person is culpable. Stone and earth are not consumed entirely, but a fire can cause them to deteriorate until they're no longer useful for the purpose that they were supposed to be used for. Shenamans, it says, and once it hit thorn, it found thorns, a Yasada or a field. If the fire consumed a granary or something similar, what if the fire consumed a granary and the guy happened to have buried all kinds of utensils, all kinds of precious machinery in his granary? If it was stuff like threshers and yokes for cattle and other stuff that is normal for a person to place in his granary, then the guy who caused the flame is culpable, responsible not only for the grain, but also for the machinery. But how you begot them if they were clothing or glass objects or where the guy is just sticking stuff into a granary, part of is exempt. For these utensils, they don't belong there. When does this apply? If he's kindling the flame in somebody else's field. If he's kindling in his own field. So what's the problem? The algorithm says, the fire spread into somebody else's field. Potter is exempt for all utensils which are buried in this granary. But he has to play for the, pay for the place of the utensils. And we imagine as if it was filled with more wheat or more barley. Somebody kindles a flame in someone else's field. The alteration of the flame goes from the and reaches the granary. And tragically, there was a goat tied to the granary. So the goat could not get away, it was tied. And there was a servant hanging out by the granary. And the goat was tragically. Consumed in the flame. The servant was tragically consumed in the flame. Chayov, commentary say, he's culpable, he's liable for the goat, but not for the servant. Why? The servant wasn't tied. The servant could have walked away. The servant is an intelligent person. Shekane dead the other masses by because that's a normal situation. People will tie a goat and they'll have people working there. But Hayo Ebit Kopus, what if the slave, the servant, was tied to the granary? Ugidi Somakhlay and the goat was just hanging out there. Venisra Ime and the servant was burned. Potter, the guy who started the flame, is exempt. What? Why is he exempt? It's a terrible thing. Because he could be tried for murder. And whenever a person could be culpable for taking a life, they're exempt for finances. That's the principle of we give him the more severe liability, and that is life and death. And in this case, whether he's found culpable or not, in other words, whether he receives capital punishment or not, because it is a capital punishment case, it exempts the financial responsibility. That's the meaning of this paragraph. What if somebody comes to his neighbor? He says, my good neighbor, can I store my stuff in your granary? He says, sure. So he gave him space, and he created a granary, a grain heap. The heap and he put all kinds of stuff hidden in the grain. 
and the owner of this land who let him use this area for his grain heap. He started a fire. And unfortunately, this grain heap also got burned. And he's not responsible for the fact that the guy hid precious utensils in the grain heap. Because I let you put grain here, I didn't let you put expensive machinery there. What if he gave him permission to create a grain heap of wheat? And he in fact created a grain heap of barley. Barley is cheaper than wheat. Or he allowed him to create a grain heap of barley, cheaper than wheat. And he really put wheat there. Or he put wheat there. And covered the wheat with barley. I guess the guy shouldn't see where he put barley and covered them with wheat. Bottom line is, you only had permission, mister, to put barley, the cheaper thing. The liability is only for barley. So if there was a thousand dollars damage for the wheat, had it been barley, it would be eight hundred dollars. You only have to pay eight hundred dollars. Because nobody gave you permission to put wheat. You'd be based on somebody sets fire to somebody else's house. Again, so many of the laws today come from these laws. Now we come to the laws. Speak to your insurance man. Are you insured for contents? Are you insured just for the house? Or do you have contents insurance? What's contents? For what's in the house? If somebody kindled a flame and burned the guy's house down, he pays for all the contents. Because it is the normal people. They put all their, as we say in Yiddish, all their stuff, all their belongings, but them in the house. Now where else should I put my belongings? In a safe? It's my house. Furthermore, this guy who was a victim of the fire his house burned down, he comes up with a list. You know what I had in my house? Huh? I had a million dollar machine. I had computers worth billions. You know, you're claiming insurance. You claim. Again, there's no insurance here. Whatever he says was there. My rare stamp collection. Worth a million dollars. The halacha says that the guy who claims very expensive stuff can go to the court, hold a holy, holy object like a Torah, and take an oath, and because of that oath, we believe him. And the guy whose claim it is, he has to pay. You do the crime, you do the time, you do the work. This oath is, of course, a rabbinic oath. As we will explain in great detail. Now, that is provided that it makes some level of sense that the contents that he's claiming could have been his. As long as he argues that the contents of the house was stuff that you would imagine he was used to. That, 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 that would be normal for him. Or he takes people's items for safekeeping. You have to prove a history. You have to prove that it's normal. Then you don't have to pay. So this is very interesting. The laws of contents, the laws of I claim. I know the insurance business today is not so simple. You have to prove you have the thing. You have to bring bills. You know, it's not so simple today. Here comes a situation where there's a camel. Which is overloaded, overladen with flax, which is highly flammable. And it's walking down the narrow public street. And because the flax was so overloaded, the flax leaned into someone's stall. Stores back then used to be like stalls off the public road. And the flax kind of jutted into the stall. The doka and caught fire on the candle of the storekeeper. The storekeeper had a candle, and suddenly the flax is on fire. The heat leak is burned down the whole building. Who's culpable here? Whose fault was this? It was the storekeeper's flame, but the storekeeper was in his store, minding his own business. Guard it. It is the camel driver, the camel owner. Who is culpable? And they should hit him on because his load was too big. His load should not have protruded to the extent that it went into somebody's stall. Whether the camel stopped or it was still going makes no difference. That is if the candle was inside, but if the guy put the candle outside, the guy put the candle outside his stall, he's having a cigar outside his stall. Now the storekeeper is culpable. Not only to pay for the damage of the building, but to pay for the damage of the flax as well. Because as soon as a person puts his flame outside, you better hire an army to watch it. Now we have an interesting law here. Even if it was, what do you want from me? I lit my Hanukkah lights. Allah says I have to do it by the doorway outside. Well, you can't light your Hanukkah lights and go. You better watch your Hanukkah lights. You should have guarded his Hanukkah lights. What if somebody goes, takes the standing grain belonging to someone else, bends it over until it catches fire? If the fire only gets there, by an unusual, unpredictable wind, you can't consider him culpable by, uh, to human law because he did not have to expect that fire. However, but he's liable to God's law. What if somebody buries someone's standing grain in the earth or in straw? 
and flame came, the Ochlaisim and consumed them. And the Apeman, Popian, Medina Odin, the one who hides it in earth or straw, is exempt from human law, and he is liable by God's law. Why? Because the guy who lit the fire doesn't have to suspect that anything is buried under straw or under earth. And he says here that these two examples are carefully chosen, straw and earth, because earth reduces the likelihood that the grain will be consumed by fire. Straw increases the likelihood that the grain will be consumed by fire. Nevertheless, in either case, the same law applies. Test ball 15, a flame spread, the Sodom and hurt man, the Chavla by any damage. Then the one whose flame it is, the one who's responsible for the flame, is culpable not only for damage, as we learned earlier, in the case of other damages, but here, we talked earlier that when a human being damages another human being, there are five tracks that he has to pay for. And they are nezek damage. I'll say it in the order that I'm used to saying it. Tsar, pain. Ripui, medical expenses. Shebes, loss of income. Boshes, shame experienced. Embarrassment. We learned earlier that in the case of the things we talked about earlier, there is no liability for any of these arenas, only for damage. But in the case of flame, we go back where there's liability for all five. As he says here in his of damage, Bishifte is loss of income, Beripia medical expenses, Bissari is pain, or Bashi is embarrassment. Chi'ilo, Hizikri Biyode, because damage by flame is like damage by hand. And here we go to a very famous debate in the Talmud between Rabbi Yochanan and Reish Lokish. Baba Kama 22a. The question is, is the kindling of flame regarded like one would shoot an arrow? I shoot an arrow. The arrow goes and travels as far as it travels, and then does the damage. A flame goes and travels as far as it travels, and then does the damage. So it's a traveling damage doer. That's what Rabbi Yochanan maintains. Reish Lokish says, no, a fire is no different than a person's pit or a person's animal. It's mamono, my money. This is the debate. The Rambam says, <coughs> here, it is like his arrow did damage, not like his pit or his animal did damage, which does not have the other tracks of damage. If a person's animal or pit cistern did damage to a person in a chayyab, there's only one track of nezek, damage. Not tsar, not ripui, not shepherds, not boshes. Kamesh Abiyano, as we explained, so the Rambam, Paskins, the halacha, the Rambam, accepts the halacha decision that eish mishum chitzyoi, that fire is like a arrow, closing paragraph. Tezayim kel, tel deso eish, all of the derivatives or offshoots of the primary fire, harayhenka eish, are like fire. Ketzat, for example. What other examples are there that would emulate, that would mirror fire? Hinech eben, if somebody put a stone, a mas, a sakin or a knife, a masa or a burden, the gabe at the top of his roof. Then came a normal, predictable wind. Blew the stone off, blew the knife down, blew the burden down, the ezekiah, and caused damage. A person should know that that wind can happen. That's a classical example of where one has to pay 100% of the damage. You shouldn't put your stone or knife or burden near the edge of the roof so that it can be blown off. Because all of the above, or similar, they are derivatives of habeida, of flame, anything that's yours, that travels by wind, and does damage. That's the basic principle. However, if any of the above fell in a non-predictable wind, a weird, unexpected wind, Ezekiel indeed damaged, popular, the person is exempt, similar to fire, and here the Rambam says, Sliku lahu ilchais, in this moment we have completed, Baruch Hashem, the laws of damage of finances, with the help of Hashem, Amen.